and welcome back to Determination, a podcast about Indigenous sovereignty, self-determination, Indigenous brilliance, and the people who embody them. I'm your host, Dara Blackwater Yenishye. Beshbacha Inishle, Dotsena Jenny Bashish Chin, Ado Beshbacha Idashiche, Ado Taj Ini Dashinale. I was really, really excited when I heard that today's guest would agree to speak with me about spectrum issues. Anthony Royal is the CEO of the Interim Maori Spectrum Commission. For anyone who isn't familiar, the Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand. Anthony has played a key role in spectrum negotiations between Maori leadership and the New Zealand government officials. Earlier this year, these negotiations led to a memorandum of agreement or a memorandum of understanding, MOA or MOU, which is essentially a document that records the compromises of each side of an issue. So this is sort of like a treaty, but not as big of a deal as a treaty. In fact, the Maori do have a treaty with New Zealand called the Treaty of Waitangi, and the Maori have asserted that spectrum is encompassed in their treaty as a natural resource. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's the same argument that I'm making on the United States side for Native nations within present-day America. And the governments, the colonial governments on both sides, the United States government and the New Zealand government, are treating it very, very similarly, where they're just not recognizing indigenous rights to spectrum or spectrum sovereignty. Nevertheless, I was interested to talk to Antony about the Maori's struggle for spectrum rights because they're a few steps ahead of Native nations in the United States on this journey to the acknowledgement of indigenous spectrum rights. As you'll hear, the government of New Zealand still generally resists the idea of spectrum sovereignty for their indigenous people, but it does concede that spectrum is important to self-determination and that the Maori should be able to use some spectrum for their networks and broadcasting. So through this document, the Memorandum of Agreement, they have gained some rights to their spectrum, the Maori people. So... I don't want to drag on with this intro. I really just want to get to the meat of this conversation because Anthony was such a great guest and we learned so much from each other. So I'm really excited for you to hear it. Here's Anthony Royal. Uh, my name's Anthony Royal. So the, the first name and the last name are English words and the middle two are Māori words and so um, I come from a, a family where my father was Māori and my mother was Pākehā or, or um, English European uh, by descent um, and I come from quite a big large family particularly on my father's side. He was um, one of 13 kids and we grew up on a farm uh, just uh, about an hour south of Auckland on the coast. Uh, back in the days when um, it was uh, not at all um, uh, encouraged for Māori to, to speak their own language. In fact, um, at school, the kids were uh, caned for speaking Te Reo Māori, the our Māori language. And so my grandparents uh, brought up my father's generation not knowing our language, and there's been uh, of course, a lot of, of um, regeneration over the years uh, where Māori language is spoken much more widely now than it was uh, back in the days when, when my parents were growing up. 
Um, we have a, um, a farm here, about 300 odd acres on the coast. Um, it's the very last piece of continuously occupied Māori land on this coast. Um, so land is pretty precious to us. Um, but I was brought up uh, in our capital city, Wellington, um, as a kid. Um, and um, I became interested in engineering, which was quite strange because most of my family were all uh, school teachers or educationists of some kind. And my, my father played a big role in, in uh, education for Māori within inside uh, uh, Aotearoa, our country. And um, so I was kind of an outlier. I decided I wanted to do mechanical engineering and went to uh, university and then decided I didn't like thermodynamics um, and then swapped because there was this newfangled computer stuff that was coming out and I thought that looked exciting. And so I swapped and um, decided to do electrical engineering instead. And that's what I trained in. And I kind of fell into telecommunications along the way. Uh, so that's, um, uh, that's my uh, background is actually as, a, as an engineer. I actually trained as a process control engineer um, in paper machines and computers that manage paper machines. And I worked, my first job was for an American company called Accuray out of Ohio. Columbus, Ohio was the headquarters. And um, I traveled with them mostly in through Asia doing project management work. Um, and then after a number of years doing that, came back to New Zealand, retrained in IT, um, and then got involved with Tuanagarokoa, which is um, one of the three Māori universities here in New Zealand. And we did a lot of work in technology and um, looking to get more Māori involved in technology and in normalising the use of, of uh, information technology, particularly in homes. So we had um, a lot of students that were uh, had come to Tuanagarokoa uh, to learn more about their history and about their language and um, um, other topics. And we normalized it by sending computers back to back to their homes. They had to have a computer as part of enrollment. And um, as a result, we've seen quite a bit, uh, quite a big change in in Māori and engagement with uh, computers. Nice. So um, yeah, that was that was um, how I kind of ended up at Tuanangorokoa and we had one of our komat or one of our elders there, one of our leaders, a fellow by the name of Flatalangi Winiata, who was a professor. And he said, um, look, we're, we're getting involved in this um, fight for spectrum. Uh, can you come and get involved in that? And, and that was way back in 2000. And I've been involved in it ever since. Oh, wow. I want to ask you so many questions about the origin of you know, these spectrum rights for the Maori people, but I want to go back a little bit and just sort of recognize that the generations that you're describing, you said that your grandparents were fluent speakers and they were the ones who were at school encouraged not to speak Maori. And then, so your parents didn't speak no, fluent? No, my, that's right. My grandparents were fluent. Yeah. Um, but they did, because of the way that our society was at that time, Mm -hmm. um, they thought it was necessary for their kids to grow up learning English, not Māori. Mm -hmm. And so it was, they, they were never taught um, their language when they grew up. Mm -hmm. Of course, my father subsequently did when he went to university. 
and he was one of the first in his and our family to go to university. Of course, we've had a, quite a number since then. Um, but you know, my father and his generation just saw education as being the key, and that's what he dedicated his life to. Yeah, that's pretty uh, much exactly how it's gone in my family as well, where my grandparents were the ones who went to boarding schools, these you know government church run. Um, boarding schools, and they were the ones who were, you know, punished brutally for speaking their language. And so they didn't pass mm. it on because they wanted my father's generation to speak English and be able to, you know, fit in and and succeed in the white man's world. So, um, yeah, it's interesting just, you know, being an yeah, ocean exactly away. Yeah, yeah, and having these same parallels of of how colonization has affected our communities and and kind of being on the same healing timeline as well of like oh. our generations it sounds like the maori have done incredible things with education and bringing that language back to the children as well which i love i, I love reading about that sort of thing yeah absolutely education has been the key and it just opens opportunities for others you know beyond education well as a as a subject and um you know we're, we're very and that that's my kind of areas in the technology is actually how do we bring more Māori into the technology space? Because mm. it affects what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so, you know, it's it's that's a long journey and we've got a long way to go, but we have made, you know, significant progress over the last couple of decades. Yeah. So switching back to what we're here to talk about, um, you know, telecommunications and specifically spectrum rights for the Maori people, which has been such a fascinating journey in New Zealand. Um, first, I'm hoping you can just lay a bit of foundation for us. I think a lot of the people who listen to this maybe have some familiarity with the way that the United States government is organized when it comes to Indian affairs. We have um, the Department of Interior, who we have the Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, the first Native person, and you know she's a Native woman, to be at the helm of the Department of Interior, where our Bureau of Indian Affairs and you know so much of our um, you know Indian federal Indian law policy lives in that. Um, and then we also have these other entities that are like um, the Federal Communications Commission that does a lot of this telecommunications work and, you know, houses the spectrum policy. And then for us, those agencies have to kind of figure out. And then we have the Department of Agriculture, which gives a lot of money for broadband grants. And uh, some of that gets over to tribes as well. So um, I'm curious for the Maori and for, you know, your the Maori government, as well as the um, government of New Zealand, like, what does that look like as far as their intergovernmental relations? Um, well, it's fascinating how you describe it, because it's somewhat similar here. So we had um, a couple of key institutions with inside government. Um, one was the, um, the Maori land uh, space and that was about the the court there was a court that was set up specifically to manage Māori lands but its original intention was to actually take lands from Māori and make it available to uh, the settlers here. Wow. That was their original intention. Of course over the years that's changed now whereas its intention now is to manage Māori lands so that we're um, we're dealing with some of the effects that colonization has had over the years. So um, particularly in colonization, 
and end of um, you know, the English brand of colonization, where land was assigned to individual persons. There was no ability to recognize communal land, which of course, more Māori land was communally owned. So of course, when the um, British came here, they said, oh no, we have to chop this up, put these imaginary lines on it. And then what we have to do is assign who actually owns the bits in between these imaginary lines. And they put a limit of number of 10 people that were allowed on each of these pieces of land. So there was a whole process of disenfranchising Māori through a whole range of different mechanisms, including saying things like um, you're having to have, you know, only 10 people on a uh, allocated to a piece of land. And in some cases, they didn't even manage to identify who those 10 people were. So mm. it's um, so that was one of the key government um, levers. Uh, there was also the Māori Affairs Department, which was set up some years ago, which was to manage Māori affairs. Um, for many years, of course, it was headed up by Pākehā or Europeans to manage Māori stuff. And then, of course, over time, that's changed and we're Māori are now heading that up. And that's, um, the Māori Affairs Department doesn't exist any longer, but there is the, what they call Puni Kōkiri, which is the uh, Ministry of Māori Development which is fundamentally run, run by Māori, but it is a government organisation um, with a view to trying to um, deal with a lot of Māori issues. And they've had quite a bit of success um, over the years, but they are still a government organisation. So, I mean, they have been helpful in the, in the conversation around telecommunications, quite helpful over the years. Um, the... Uh, the way that we um, protested telecommunications was for us to go to uh, another government organisation, which was set up by the government called the Waitangi Tribunal, which is a, it's like a court. Um, and I'm certainly not an expert on this, but it, it has the ability to hear grievances on behalf of Māori, both traditional and contemporary. And they sit and listen to the evidence and then come up with a recommendation. Unfortunately, um, it is not enforceable. It only becomes a recommendation and the government can elect to listen to the findings of the court or not, which yeah. in the year 2000, they didn't, of course, but uh, that's, that's the beginning of the story. Sure. So this is where... I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because this was just baffling to me. As I was doing research for this interview, I was reading the memorandum of agreement that was passed in February um, for, uh, you know, telecommunications and Maori spec spectrum. And it really, my blood just started boiling because in my research, I've been researching this for a couple of years now and the Maori treaty has kind of been like this like golden egg of indigenous spectrum rights and and then reading in this memorandum of agreement I mean it's great in so many ways and I, I know that so many people worked hard on it and it's it's really a, a beautiful document and it literally says you know the is it um, I don't want to pronounce it wrong is it the uh, Waitangi Tribunal? Waitangi Tribunal. Um, so it literally says, you know, the Waitangi Tribunal has recognized that's um, essentially uh, for us, it would be like spectrum is a natural resource. It, it falls under, is it um, Tanga? 
Taonga, yes, Taonga. treasures. So yeah, Taonga. treasures, natural resources, the same, the same word that uh, water rights and education and children and heirlooms and artifacts and land fall under. Um, it's saying we recognize that the the Waitanga tribe, Waitangi tribunal sees it as this, as a natural resource, as a thing, treasure that belongs to the Maori inherently. And we're not going to recognize that. So we're going to do all of these other things instead. And it really just threw me for a loop because that wasn't what I was expecting to read. But like I said, it, it still is progress. It's just not, you know, the big thing of, of, yeah, we recognize that Maori have inherent rights to this natural resource that's on their land. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about how it how it got to that about the memory coming to the memory memorandum of understanding that was passed in February and and your role in it, what you think about it, all of the above. So um, there was a, a, a there was a treaty signed in 1840 between the Māori chiefs of New Zealand and the British Crown, <clears throat> which um, and there were a number of articles in there which guaranteed you know sovereignty. Um, uh, for Māori, but also allowed um, a level of governorship for the British um, government at the time. And primarily at, at that time when that treaty was signed, the uh, British subjects were pretty much in the minority and confined to the, to, the, um, to the cities, where there was quite a bit of lawlessness breaking out amongst all of these um, immigrants. And of course, Māori wanted the... the um, the British government to deal with it. So we're happy for the government to, you know, to, to exert some degree of governance over there, particularly around the cities and managing all of these immigrants. So um, Māori at that time didn't see the, the treaty as, as, holding, as handing over, you know, the whole country, holders bolus to the British crown. Um, and of course, there was, there was a lot of um, uh, difficulties around the, the translation of the treaty and once again i'm no expert in this sure yeah we have the same is, thing you know there, there was there was a significant treaty which the government then went and ignored for quite some time um so a lot of our conversations always lead back to the treaty and saying well this this was the the nature of the agreement this is how the government was formed and this is on upon the basis in which this government was formed and so let's look back at the intent of what was being uh, attempted to be done back in 1840. And so that relates to the conversation around telecommunication spectrum, because this is a, a tongue or a treasure or a natural resource um, that existed at the time of the treaty signing. Now, some would say, well, you know, why, why should we listen to Māori around, you know, telecommunication spectrum back in 1840? Because, you know, they didn't know it existed then. And our argument is, well, actually, we did know about um, not necessarily telecommunications, we certainly knew about spectrum. Um, and it was never quantified. In fact, the British never knew about spectrum until, you know, the 1890s when it was quantified by that fellow called Hertz. So um, it's a spurious argument to say that, that Māori shouldn't have it because they didn't know about it in 1840. Well, nor, nor did the Crown either. So... Um, but that's the basis of, of much of our, of our arguments. And what we've been trying to do as a country is to 
recognize the wrongs that have been done since that treaty was signed and attempted to do um, what they're calling treaty settlements, which, which are, you know, the major Māori tribes have been settling with the Crown on this, but, you know, what, what they're settling for is, is you know, 5% maximum of what they've lost over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, what we're trying to do is trying to find a way forward. Yeah. Now, uh, my personal opinion is that when we come to telecommunication spectrum, the Crown doesn't want to recognise those rights because immediately, if you say, okay, well, that's a natural resource that we we uh, agree was was um, included in the Treaty of Waitangi, then that opens up discussions around the other natural resources: water, gold, silver, petroleum, and and I. I think that that's a um, that'll be too hard for the government to deal with at this particular point in time. Mm-hmm. So um, yes, you're right. The MOU um, says that the Crown, uh, our government, um, does not see this as a treaty settlement, um, but they are looking for an arrangement that we can both work uh, work with and that we can move forward on. Mm-hmm. And this arrangement you will also see in that MOU is that this arrangement we're putting in place does not extinguish in any way any rights that we may at, in the future um, exert in terms of these rights to natural resources. So, so we're not giving away our rights, mm-hmm. um, but we have agreed to figure out how to work together to um, to move forward on this. Otherwise, you know, We'll be waiting another generation or two to to make some progress. Yeah, that sounds so, like so. That's how we do it. Yeah, good lawyering right there. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about the agreement. So it does not recognize, um, you know, broad, vast Maori rights to you know all spectrum like I personally think it should, but it does do a lot of good things. Um, and so before we really dive into the memorandum of understanding, can you tell me, you gave us like, you did a good job of laying the background of, of how we got here. Um, and I'm curious just sort of how you specific, how you specifically got here. You're the CEO of the interim, Ma- uh, help me here, interim Maori interim Spectrum, Maori Spectrum <laughs> Commission. Commission. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, so what, what is the commission for? What does it do? What's the purpose? And, um, and what is your role in all of that? Well, maybe I'll start from this journey, which for me started way back in 2000, mm-hmm. 1999, 2000. 1999 was when the, what they call the Y776 um, uh, uh, um, Waitangi Tribunal submission was made. Uh, and at that stage, the government said, after the, the tri- tribunal came back and said, yes, you know, we think that uh, Māori do have interest in the spectrum. Um, the government said at the time, uh, no, we don't recognise that, but uh, what we'll do is we'll give you the rights to buy some spectrum and we'll give you a 5% discount and we'll give you a little bit of money and we'll set up a trust uh, to go ahead and develop that. So that was in 2000. The, it was called the Māori Spectrum Trust, uh, which was renamed Wurakitika Trust. And that trust um, then went on 
and it didn't have a lot of money. It had to raise a bunch of um, funds to buy to buy the spectrum, but it managed to attract investors from overseas to actually start up New Zealand's third mobile network. And that mobile network was called Two Degrees Mobile. And actually, some some of the major investors were from Trilogy International, based out of Seattle. Um, John Stanton, um, who had been involved in um, working with Indigenous peoples in Alaska uh, around wireless, um, I think it was called Western Wireless back at the time. He became involved. Uh, and it was through directly through Māori's um, interest in Spectrum that this third mobile network operator is up and running. In fact, it's actually being sold right at the moment to an Australian uh, company. But it's been it's been very successful in challenging the incumbents, which was uh, Telecom New Zealand and Vodafone. And we used to have one of the highest rates of uh, mobile phone calling in, in the world um, because we had this really comfortable duopoly who managed to who did everything from um, ensuring regulation was in place to prevent third uh, mobile operator coming to the agreements that they had. Um, it took a lot of time, a lot of changes in regulation um, until we actually managed to get to the point where I've got this uh, new network operating now. Our, our mobile costs are considerably less. And so we've, the value of that has been billions of dollars to the New Zealand economy as a result, direct result of Māori getting involved in telecommunications. Now, our direct benefit as a result hasn't been commensurate with the benefit that the whole of New Zealand has received. Um, and so, you know, this was a lot of work and effort by, by a number of Māori over many years, you know, no pay to get there. But we, we've achieved a great result. And so we use that as, a, as an example to government. So if you work with us instead of against us, you know, we can actually make some changes and, and bring value to the whole of New Zealand. This is not just about value to Māori. This is about value to the whole of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So that was um, back in 2000. That was the 3G spectrum, 2100 megahertz spectrum. And can I just say, um, there's a, there, there is another conversation we had about um, spectrum auctions, but I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, and, then, and then in um, 2013, uh, the government decided it was going to auction off the 700 megahertz spectrum. We went to the government and said, you know, you can't do that without reference to Māori and they said oh yeah no we you know after lots of discussions they said no we're not going to give you any spectrum but what we will do is that we'll set up a uh, 30 million dollar digital development fund for investing in Māori companies and I said well if you're going to give that to Māori give it to Māori don't give it to yourselves so which the government did, immediately did it gave itself 700 million dollars to be managed by a government department mm. And, and because I was the one that was kicking out the most fuss about it, I ended up becoming the chair of the ministerial advisory uh, committee on that. And uh, we managed to get some of that funding out in the hands of Māori companies so that they can start to innovate and develop, um, develop the technology. Some of them have been quite successful. So that was the 4G spectrum. And then, of course, we come to 5G. Mm -hmm. And um, 2019, the government came along and said, well, we're going to auction off the 3.5 gig band for 5G. We expect you're going to have to say something about that. And he said, yes. So we got into a room with a whole bunch of ministers. 
and um, and the minister said, "Well, we're getting sick of you coming and telling us every time we have an auction that um, uh, that you disagree with it." We said, "Well, we're getting sick of it too." So they said, "Well, how about we come up with an arrangement we can both live with?" We said, "Well, we'll we'll see what that looks like, and we'll work together to try and figure that out." And that's what we've done in the last two years, is we've been negotiating an agreement which culminated in the MOU, um, which was signed in February this year, mm-hmm. which was about setting up an arrangement in which we we could not necessarily settle treaty um, issues, but we could come up with something that would benefit both Māori and and the rest of New Zealand, and that's that's what we're doing. So, as part of the um, process, we had to set up a an interim body to actually hold Spectrum. So we set up a trust, um, appointed uh, the trustees appointed me as the CEO. Uh, with the idea of being that part of our work is to transition to a new entity which will be enshrined in legislation. We want legislation to enshrine it because we don't want to be left to the political you know, wins that, that happen. We have a three-year election cycle and some things get rolled back, you know, depending upon which party is in power. We want this to be a permanent entity and to make sure that we have some a long-term sustainable goals in place. So that's so that's what I'm doing now is um, heading up the interim Spectrum commission. We've got a couple, we've got a number of things we've got to do. One is to complete the negotiation, um, get legislation in place, um, and one of the immediate things we're doing right now is working on what the governance arrangements might look like for a new entity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also starting up our innovation uh, platform, which is to look to um, how we can innovate over 5G and other wireless technologies and how do we actually get more training and, and capability built with inside Māori in the telecommunications sector. So uh, that's what we're doing and um, hopefully next year we'll have a new organisation. But in the meantime, I'm starting to ramp this up and uh, getting some of our expertise, particularly around 5G, but but other wireless technologies, IoT and a whole range of other things. We, we want to get Māori across um, all of these technologies. Cool. I love that work and I love the vision. Um, I have a couple questions for you about uh, Maori governance, because if it's anything like how tribes are and tribal governments are in America, there's sometimes some um, some tension with, you know, who do you talk to and who, who gets to make the decisions? Because like for us, the Diné, where I'm from the Navajo nation, you know, we were never, we never had a president. You know, we had lots of different groups that were all kind of governed by themselves. And then those people would get together and and have conversations. And we've always been a matriarchy. And now we have this democracy that was set up by the, um, you know, by the colonial government, by the United States. And they kind of said like, okay, Navajo Nation, you're a democracy now. You're going to have a president. This is what, how it's going to be. Here's your um, constitution. And, um, and so our president is Jonathan Nez. And I say this all the time, no, no shade to the Navajo Nation government. You know, they're doing a great job in in a lot of different ways. And um, it's not, how our government looks now is not how our government looked for governments looked for thousands of years before that. So I'm just curious, you know, it's kind of a rabbit hole here, but um, as you're, as you're doing this and as you're having these conversations with Maori leadership, um, what does the Maori government 
government even look like? Is it like, it, it, does it reflect the New Zealand government where it's sort of this um, three party, this three branch government, or is it lots of different leaders? And what what is that like? Um, let's just say that it doesn't yet reflect what we'd like it to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a one house parliament, um, which is, um, you know, primarily elective representatives to the democratic system. We do have a number of Māori um, members of parliament that are elected through Māori wards or, or of Māori electorates. Um, and so they are elected on that basis, but they're not, they're, they're there as, as part of the parliamentary representation process, not the Māori representation process. Mm-hmm. So it is very challenging. Um, the if, if you looked back at how Māori organised themselves um, previously, they didn't have these this um, natural big tribes uh, kind of approach. They were, were mostly what we call um, hapu, which were kind of sub tribes, and would form alliances, you know, from time to time, and then they would join together for a, you know, for for specific things. And it wasn't until the government, when it started thinking about, you know, treaty settlements process, that it said, well, now you actually have to have an organization who represents your interests, you have to have the mandate. And they've set up these things called um, PSGEs, post-settlement governance entities, um, which is effectively a a trust type of structure, Mm -hmm. um, which has a board, they're elected by the people um, and they, they're the ones that um, have the mandate to be able to negotiate on behalf of that tribe. Um, and there are you know, a, a lot of tribes in New Zealand, some big and some small. Um, I'm chair actually one of the tribes in, in the Hauraki area. Um, and so you have these, um, these tribes that have these governance entities, and some of them historical, um, and some of them are through this treaty settlement process. Um, and then you have um, as well some representative um, bodies, which are the next level. So there's, a, there's an iwi chairs forum. So that is a forum of um, iwi chairs that get together, they meet every couple of months, and they discuss issues that are of interest nationally, and generally interact with the government over a number of these issues. For example, um, over natural resources and, and water, you know, how, how are we going to manage water mm-hmm. uh, on an ongoing basis? But not okay. every iwi is necessarily a member of that, uh, of that form. Then we have Māori, uh, national Māori organisations who are pan-Māori organisations that are not necessarily linked to a tribe. Um, an example for that is the New Zealand Māori Council, which is a, a statutory body set up many years ago, who, who represents Māori right throughout the country and, had, and have, you know, done good work um, uh, over the years. And then, of course, we have um, our urban Māori uh, mm-hmm. organisations who represent, you know, those Māori who tend to live in city areas and urban areas. And they don't, who don't necessarily have their links back to their tribes because they've lost them along the way, or um, they have very strong links um, because this is where their closest living um, 
uh, living to uh, compared with you know many of the rural many of the EBR are based in rural areas so it's a very very complex area and it's very challenging to get across mm-hmm. across all of these governance entities and to bring everybody on board and in particular on a topic um, that is highly complex sure technically complex it's very complex trying to describe to people telecommunications how it works how the technology works how the spectrum management works well how the rights work um it's and, and what the future looks like it's it's very challenging so that that's been very difficult i'd have to say we've been um really successful to date in getting um all of the organizations we're working with uh, together across this but but i have to say that part of this is down to trust because it takes decades of work in this space to get people to get to know you and i mean new zealand is a small country so so that's really helpful in that regard because we build all these personal relationships and you build that trust over time and that that really helps uh, with the group that we have together and all the personal relationships that everybody has um, helps to build a cohesive um, that's not to say everybody disagrees with us we do have our attracted detractors um, but fundamentally in terms of where we're heading um, it's it's pretty much unanimous that this is this is the direction that we need to head um, we're probably less coherent in terms of how those structures and how control is going to be exercised um, long term so big challenging area it's 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 very difficult um, but you, you've got to have the subject matter experts who who are you know well known and trusted in the space yeah. uh, that can that can bring everybody along yeah definitely and it sounds like you and your team have have taken that challenge on and have really tried to see this through um going back to um, the agreement now, I'm curious what it is, this memorandum of understanding, like I said, it's it's a beautiful document and it's very obvious that a lot of contributors were very thoughtful about what to put into this thing. And you were one of those, you're one of the parties to this memorandum of agreement. So I'm curious just what you think of it, what you're most proud of, what you would change and what you think is so great about this thing that so many people have obviously poured their hearts and minds into. Um, look, it's, it was, it was a, definitely a team effort. We had a number of people and it took uh, two years to put this together. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because, you know, COVID intervened and we had to do everything by Zoom. Um, which wasn't ideal because fundamentally we're we're a face-to-face people. Fundamentally, we we like to get in a room and spend time with people. And when we call a national hui or a national uh, conference on this, we like to spend a couple of days and get together and live together for for that time to actually you know really tease these things out. And that wasn't possible um, during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, we pretty much had to do everything online. Um, and we had a, a range of people um, who knew a lot of us. So um, our chair, Pitipi Walker, you know, he, he has a long history, not just in telecommunications, but on the fight um, around Māori television, um, FM, AM radio stations. 
you know, this this has a long history, and, and he has a, a long history in, in working in this area. Um, and we have others that that bring different skills to to bear uh, around the, um, uh, particularly around the treaty space and around relationships and how they should be um, uh, how they should should be portrayed with inside the the agreement. Mm. Um, the bit that that I'm probably um, I managed to the, speak the most time on was the technical side. Uh, really understanding, you know, what are the drivers for government from a, from a uh, spectrum management perspective, but also understanding the mobile network operators and all the other users of spectrum and, and um, understanding where potentially our place in this um, ecosystem could fit and what are the opportunities for us right in front of us. So, We've been very, uh, very keen to get ourselves skilled up on spectrum uh, issues of spectrum management, um, which requires, you know, quite a degree of um, technical know-how. We've we've brought in um, people to help us, and we're not afraid to do that. Um, our spectrum uh, technician uh, specialist is um, from Sri Lanka. Uh, he's been in New Zealand for quite some time. Absolutely mm-hmm. loves working with us, and he's and you know he's he's in another one's contributed. We have people from contributed from all walks of life, from um, you know many um, uh, Pakeha or, or Europeans have supported us, um, and you know we've we've it's we we have a vision and a journey that people buy into, and and that's what it's about is actually buying into a vision. And we get a lot of help as a result of doing that. We're not here to make money for shareholders. We're here because um, we're making a difference for our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And, and when you kind of articulate that kind of vision, you get a lot of help from a lot of quarters. Very cool. Um, so, so yeah, I know that there was the technical side it really needed to be um, done. I, I can't say that we, we didn't get everything we asked for. It was a negotiation after all. Sure. Um, uh, but I'm sure there'll be opportunities for further discussion further down the track. But um, yeah. I, I think that we have the sufficient to get on with the job. Getting into the technical bit, I, I'm really glad that you said that that's the part that you're most interested in and um, involved in. Um, so one of the things that the Memorandum of Understanding says is that they have a goal to grow Maori capabilities and participation in spectrum-related industries. Um, and then they have an agreement, the Crown agrees to um, manage Maori's spectrum, and there's an ongoing allocation of national spectrum um, as, the, as the Maori need. And so I'm curious, um, because we're very much going through a very similar thing in the United States. We had in um, 2019, uh, or 2020 rather, they opened a um, tribal spectrum rural priority window. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but essentially what they did was the Federal Communications Commission said, hey, tribes, Um, If you want to apply for the 2.5 gigahertz band of spectrum, we will um, review your application. And if we approve it, then you can have this band on your land, but it's only available for rural tribes. So any urban tribes or tribes in urban areas were not eligible. 
Um, you can imagine why, because that's very valuable spectrum in our urban areas. But um, a lot of tribes, I think it was over 300 tribes. We have 574 federally recognized tribes. And then there's more that are state recognized or who have never sought recognition. Um, but uh, I think over 300 tribes were able to secure their rights to this 2.5 gigahertz spectrum. And, and now there's um, different rounds of funding going out for them to build their networks on this 2.5 gigahertz band, which is awesome. Obviously, it's a great spectrum for rural areas. Um, but I think now is a time when tribes are kind of specifically the administrators are trying to figure out what managing that looks like. And um, as we, you know, it begs the question, as we're asking for more and more spectrum rights and attaining them, you know, what does it look like for a tribe to regulate spectrum and what kind of um, capacity do we have for that already? And, and what does that look like to gain that? And so it sounds like one of the, um, one of the promises that the crown makes is to really help uh, I never like saying help tribes do whatever or help Maori do whatever, but, uh, you know, to, to teach what they know about regulating spectrum so that maybe the Maori will be able to take that on the, in the future. Is that the idea? Or do you think that the, the uh, crown will continue to manage that? Uh, is that something that the Maori even want, or are they happy with the, the New Zealand government doing that? I see it a bit differently. I see this as an opportunity for us to help teach the government how to mm. regulate spectrum better. Love um, it. Because there are some things that we can do that the government would, would find difficult to do. So um, we don't have things in New Zealand, um, like for example, the CBRS band, with the, which the US has, uh, the shared spectrum bands. Um, we see shared spectrum as a, as, as a great opportunity for, um, for Māori to become involved in. And, and I would imagine um, the tribes in, in the US as well would be, um, that would be a, a, a great opportunity to actually get involved in how you manage spectrum. Because just remember that, um, well, this is how I see it, is that there is spectrum that's set aside exclusively for us, mm -hmm. but that doesn't get it, that doesn't uh, lock us out of all the other spectrum that's, that's available. Sure. So, um, uh, I, my my view is that you, is that you need to build capability around what this what spectrum management actually means, and then start to think about well, this is how they do it today. How should we be doing it in the future? Mm -hmm. So one of the things in our MOU that we've carved out is an ability to have direct um, influence over spectrum um, management right across the board, not just Māori spectrum, but all of spectrum in New Zealand. And that's our ability to be able to do it, to um, build our own capability around analysis of spectrum policy, to be advocate directly on it, to get early advance warning of what's actually happening in the spectrum work, to contribute to the government's work. And if we fundamentally dis disagree with what the officials um, would uh, propose, we have the ability to directly put our views in front of the minister. I so, love that. That, that you know that that's not to say that the minister wouldn't make a decision which would be um, entirely favourable on our side. But what we're saying is that we don't want to participate in a system which had previously been at work. Whereas, where what they would do is decide upon what they think the spectrum policy will be. They put it out. 
a consultation. Every man is dogs. Sees what you like. You go into the mix, and then you know, then they 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 decide what happens, and they summarise for the minister what the feedback is. That for us isn't good enough. What we want to be able to do is put our views directly in front of the decision maker. So that that's yeah. really fundamental. I really love that, and it's not something that I've thought too much about before because I think sometimes we get so caught up in it, it that is so big picture and as tribes I think it's really easy for us to just you know try to chip away at these problems and what you're saying is zoom out and carve away at the origin of it um, I use the analogy all the time for people who don't um, work in the spectrum field or you know really understand that essentially what the 2.5 gigahertz band priority window was, you know, my criticism of it is that they took away a cookie and they're offering us a crumb if we fill out this application. And what you're saying is, well, let's oversee the baking process, you know, and yeah, and, absolutely. yeah I, I love that. That's, um, that's very big picture. And, and I think, I hope that that's able to, yeah, it's, I guess it's very similar to the treaty or the Waitangi tribunal where you know, nobody is mandated to listen to us as Indigenous peoples, and a lot of times they don't, but what you're saying is, let's get in the position where we can offer our insight at a higher level, and maybe they'll listen and maybe they won't, but but they'll have our voices in their head from the very beginning, and then they can choose that from there. So absolutely, yeah, I, I would um, build capability to provide really good spectrum uh, analysis uh, and advice. Mm -hmm. And if you could do that under the umbrella of a collective right across the country, that'll be way more powerful. Uh, I mean, I, I know the FCC is a very powerful organization in, in your in your country. Um, and, and we don't have quite the same structure here. We're much smaller for a start. But the principle is um, let's start at the at the top level and saying, what is the basis upon which spectrum is allocated and let's have mm -hmm. some really clear views about how that should be allocated and on what basis is this about making money is this about serving the people mm -hmm. um and and if you do that then you know you're not going to get a, um you know the cookie right from the very beginning but you can actually start to figure out a strategy is you know what's beyond 2.5 what next Mm -hmm. If you got 2.5 sorted, what would you do next? Mm -hmm. And so starting to think about these bigger strategies, because you might say, well, actually 2.5 is not enough because we actually need to have that paired with some 600 or some 700. Sure. And, and you need to be able to have, you know, those conversations both at a principal level in terms of um, who should get access, but also at a technical level around, well, you know, here's, here's why you would need, you know, 600 to be paired with, you know, 2.5 or whatever. Mm -hmm. I wanted to circle back for the people listening, um, both of them. Uh, CBRS is spectrum that lots of people, lots of different people can use. So it's um, spectrum that is open. And the problem with it comes when lots of people are trying to use it at the same time. It's kind of like lanes of traffic getting gummed up and it becomes um, where you can't send signals. But if that's not an issue, there are these open lanes that are open for people to use. And, you know, if there's just two cars on it and no speed limit, then that's, that's really good for those two cars. And so when we're talking about CBRS spectrum, 
um, we're talking about uh, spectrum that the Maori could use, but if they're using it and a lot of other people are using it at the same time, then maybe it's not a great solution. And so uh, it can be in, and sometimes isn't depending on you know what's going on in the world that day. So um, one other thing I wanted to come back to is at near the beginning of this interview, you talked about um, you know the the government's argument, the New Zealand government's argument against Maori spectrum rights being, well, they didn't know that they were even there when this treaty was signed in 1843. And so, um, you know, why should we recognize those rights today? Because that you didn't know that they were there. And to which you said, well, the New Zealand government, the crown didn't know they were there either. But I love bringing that back to what you just said about, you know, overseeing the baking process and, and being able to influence spectrum policy across the entire country. I think that those are completely relevant that, that the Maori did know what spectrum was. And I make this argument all the time because the FCC has said the same thing to me when I've questioned why indigenous spectrum mm. rights aren't recognized. They say, well, they didn't know that they were there when the treaties were signed. And I say, well, neither did you. But, you know, we have observed this land for thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, sunlight is spectrum. Sunlight is something that we have mm. been feeling on this land for thousands of years. And then just understanding communication through waves, you know, understanding whales, understanding bats. These are things that we have um, seen and th these are relatives, things that we know. Um, I was at an education conference once with these indigenous elders who were presenting and they, I've told the story so many times, but I love it so much where uh, they were talking about whether to bring a computer into their tribal headquarters when computers were new. And if you know, if that was something that was okay to innovate in that way, or whether they needed to stick to tradition. And um, these elders sat with the computer for a while, and then they came back and they said, these are relatives, these are thunder beings, we know the the beings that are running through this thing. So we can, we can welcome them into our community, because these are, these are relatives, we know them. And, um, and so, you know, that argument of like, well, Maori don't know what spectrum is, it, it's very, um, it's very, it's a very antiquated argument that is very much like what, how our land was taken in the first place of like, well, savages can't own land because they're not people. It's like, what, what are, and another thing is um, when I was in DC, someone asked me once I told them what I do and they said, well, what are Indians going to do with the internet? And it's sort of that same line of questioning thrown at us. <laughs> like, well, what are Indians going to do with spectrum? It's like, well, Whoops. a lot, <laughs> let me tell you, got an hour. So yeah. So I, I really love all Look, um, a lot of our elders would exactly say exactly the same thing. Sure. That, you know, telecommunications is, is only just a, another manifestation of, of natural resource that we've known about for centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The, the, there is one area that we, we haven't covered, uh, and that is the whole spectrum auction process, which un unfortunately, you know, um, we had a hand in here in New Zealand. I'm not sure if you know that story. No. Um, so in um, 1989, the New Zealand government passed the Radio Telecommunications Act, which allowed for the first country in the world to actually auction spectrum to create these management rights. And so we were the very first country ever to auction off spectrum. Um, and it was actually a, a based upon a, um, an economic theory by the name, fellow's name, um, Ronald Close, I think it is, um, who had actually presented to the FCC 
um, many years earlier, the, the concept of oxygening spectrum. We basically said the most efficient way of using a scarce natural resource is to give it to those who would pay the most for it, mm -hmm. um, which is how the auctions came about. And so New Zealand went ahead and auctioned off a spectrum and then FCC followed pretty, pretty quickly. There were papers actually um, showing New Zealand experiments um, when they were advocating at FCC and then of course all across the world they went off to that. Now we, we um, actually argued that um, spectrum auctions are not necessarily the, the best way to do that. And this mm -hmm. is something that um, we, uh, I think continue will have an eye on and that is how best to manage our national resources and is spectrum, auctioning spectrum to um, the likes of mobile network operators at you know, um, large dollars, is that the best way to actually manage it? What are the outcomes that we're actually looking to, to seek? So um, I think there's still a lot of conversation to be had around how best to um, allocate spectrum. That's certainly something we're gonna be thinking about in the next few years is um, looking at the Māori view about how do you manage the spectrum resource. Of course, when, when it went into courts and, um, uh, you know, uh, Māori were poo-pooed um, at the time, you know, well, I don't know whether that's a colloquialism, I don't know whether you know that, but, yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're um, denigrated at the time for saying, oh, well, you know, if you, you're claiming, you know, spectrum, you'll be claiming sunlight next. And of course, my uncle at the time in court said, well, if the government goes to regulate and create private property rights around uh, sunlight, then yes, we will be having our sure. hands up yep. uh, and saying, you know, so it was this whole private property rights construct that actually kicked this all off. Um, uh, I mean, the, the positive, I guess, is that we are in this position now of being able to effectively argue for some of those property rights. But um, the very concept of moving away from a government managed on behalf of the people kind of approach to, oh, look, we've got this resource and we're going to maximise its dollars out of it is, is fundamentally the wrong way to be looking at this. So um, anyway, that's, that's yeah. something we're going to be thinking about next, um, next while. Very cool. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this develops. This is really helpful to me as someone who's just been fascinated by, you know, all of this information and, and what's happening around spectrum rights. Um, and it, it really does seem to be a global movement. You know, I've been keeping my finger on the pulse here in the States. Um, it's happening. I just saw an article where a chief up in, um, Canada of, of a First Nation, the Spuzzum Nation, uh, is calling for their spectrum rights. It's happening in Gua Guatemala uh, with radio spectrum down there. Um, and then, of course, everything that's happening with you guys. And so I am so excited to see how this plays out. I'm so excited to connect with you as someone who's got similar interests. And, um, and yeah, I, you know, if there's any way that I can support you, please absolutely let me know. And I, of course, offer the same to you, but, uh, I just really want to thank you for talking to me today and for sharing so much of your knowledge. I think, um, this is something that not a lot of people know about and not a lot of people are talking mm. about, but something that affects all of us. And, um, and that's so, so important and will be in perpetuity. So thank you for your work and thank you for what you do. And you know, the next phase for us is really starting to explore 5G uh, technologies. 
and uh, we're really excited about it. We're, we're, we're going to be putting New Zealand's very first private 5G network up very shortly. It's just arrived this morning in the country um, and we'll be um, setting that up in the next few weeks. So we're really keen now to also look at how can Indigenous peoples use these technologies, everything from IoT through to 5G um, and use them. So uh, for, for things that, you know, help solve real world problems for Māori and Māori businesses. Uh, we're really keen to do that. We're excited. I love it. Well, I'll be following and I'm a huge fan and thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anthony Royal, thank you. Ahiaha. Kia ora. No, kia ora. That's it for this episode of Determination. I want to thank Anthony one more time for sharing so much knowledge and time with us today. I also want to offer a big ahiaha to the Shuttleworth Foundation, which made this episode possible. Our intro music today is Move, I'm Indigenous by Aqualu Bertlison, and our outro music is Blue Sunrise by DJ Beso. Ahiaha for listening, and until next time, hokone. Thank you.